Hello, and welcome to Film School Dropout. I am your host, Ben Friedman, and we are in how many days of Martin Scorsese filmography? I don't know anymore. All I know is we are in the year 2002, and we're with Gangs of New York, his first film of the 21st century. Joining me today is friend of the show, a personal friend of mine. It is Forrest Hartman, professor uh, of journalism over at Chico State and uh, someone that I actually studied under while I was at Chico State. And then uh, we ended up having a working relationship post that. Uh, he and I are now colleagues over at Highbrow Magazine. So we're just talking about Games in New York. So Forrest, I am really excited to have you on for this episode, which was a movie that you specifically had requested. This wasn't, uh, I figured, I, this was not the movie I figured you would pick. Uh, but I was excited that this was the movie you threw out first and foremost. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, we've talked about this privately, but it's a film that for some reason always resonated with me. I, I think when you talk to to most people about Martin Scorsese and his filmography, uh, this one might be in the middle of the pack or lowish on the list. Uh, there's certainly a lot of movies, uh, you know, Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, things like that, that people would throw out above it. Um, but I've always had a, a soft spot. I was a, a working film critic. I mean, I guess I still am, but my primary job when this movie came out was a newspaper reporter um, and uh, film criticism was a lot of what I did. So I, I saw it in theaters. I I loved it then, um, and it's. I still love it. You know, I've rewatched it uh, because I thought I should do that before we talked about it. Um, and uh, sometimes when you do that, uh, your memories of a film are are different than uh, the reaction you get the second time. And that was not the case. I mean, I love this film just as much the the second time as as when I saw it in theaters back in the day. I was, that was something that I actually wanted to ask you about it like you remember seeing this movie where is martin scorsese kind of at your ranks at this point in 2002 because he comes off of a really successful 90s that kind of tapers off as it goes i mean he obviously starts the decade off with goodfellas and then the last few years is you have kundun which i i personally think is a really incredible remarkable piece of art but it's certainly not commercially well received uh, partly due to Disney shenanigans in promoting that movie. And then you have Bringing Out the Dead, which is this reunion with Paul Schrader, uh, starring Nicolas Cage, post Nicolas Cage's Oscar win. That one doesn't really have as much buzz. It's working in documentary filmmaking at this point in the late 90s. And Gangs of New York comes out in 2002, a year delayed. It was supposed to come out in 2001. 9-11 happens and the movie gets delayed. So what is kind of the cultural zeitgeist, if you will, with Scorsese to start the 21st century, as you remember? Well, I, I would say, you know, he wasn't the the hot director that that he was. Right. Um, and really what I remember is that reaction to bringing out the dead in particular, which you mentioned, was was extremely lukewarm. I, I mean, you you had different reactions to it as you do films. There were people who liked that movie a lot, uh, but I remember a lot of people sort of thinking it was a step down for Scorsese. And, and, you know, if you look at even its IMDb rating, it's certainly not rated as high as most of his catalog. Um, for me personally, 
um, you know, he was still a director that had done such good work prior to this um, that he was one of those guys that if he was releasing a movie, I had to see it. I, you know, I had to comment on it. I had to to review it because it was still, you know, not a director that I thought you could skip over. But you make a good point. I mean, I would say general feeling around him was was not as elevated um, as certainly in the in the 1990s when he mentioned some of the better known works that get you said. I think it's a director that I know you and I spent when I studied under you and when I'm in college taking classes with you, this is a director that I know you and I spent a lot of time uh, talking about. I've hinted or even said it on this show that my thesis paper, if you will, for my senior year of college was on uh, a lot of things on American culture, but specifically John Hinckley Jr., which heavily revolved around the movie Taxi Driver and The right. King of Sony. Uh, both Scorsese's titles. And so you and I spent a lot of time uh, talking about that and kind of going into this world. So I know this is a director that fascinates both of us. And I just kind of want to start with that. Where does your relationship with Martin Scorsese begin as a director? Oh, boy. I, uh, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember really when I was first introduced to him and th- started thinking about him as a director. I, I was a relatively young man. Um, I would argue that the first time that he really caught my attention um, was uh, a, a few years after Raging Bull came out because I was I was actually very young uh, when the film was released. It, uh, that was 1980, right? And I graduated high school in 86. Um, but I, I, that was a film that still a lot of people were, were talking about throughout the years that I was in uh, high school and that, you know, many, uh, film, uh, critics would consider to be certainly one of the best films of the 1980s. Um, so if I'm remembering correctly, I, I really sort of decided it was time to pay attention to, to Martin Scorsese after I watched Raging, uh, Bull and then, of course, I you know I would go back and see uh, Taxi Driver and some of the things released before that. And uh, after I watched, you know, Raging Bull, I, I any time he made a film, uh, I decided it was something worth seeing. Um, I don't know that I became um, a huge fan until the release of uh goodfellas uh 1990 if i'm not if i'm remembering correctly i mean i certainly i i liked raging bull a lot but i i think when i saw goodfellas because i distinctly remember watching that one in a theater i was like okay (laughs) now he's one of my favorites right I've, i've watched some of the old movies but this this is an incredible work, and uh, you know I'm 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 truly a fan at this point. <laughs> has there been a? Because I know you're a father. Uh, has there been a relationship with you? Of and I don't know what your movie relationship with your children are, but like, was that ever something that you like? Of course, Daisy title was one that you're like, hey, let's watch this together. Because I know your son also uh, writes. Uh, in the magazine with us, and I believe, maybe I'm wrong, I thought he had a Scorsese title on a recent uh, list that he had just done. 
Uh, you know, I don't ever recall sitting down to watch a Scorsese film with him, um, but certainly it's a, it's a situation where we talk about film quite a bit. Um, in it, it, it's it's interesting because uh, yeah, you're, you're talking about Garrett. I, I should throw it out. I have two sons, yeah. and Garrett Garrett is the uh, oldest. Um, he's quite a bit younger than me. I'm 55 years old. He's 21. So um, we have different tastes in a lot of ways. There's certainly a lot of media uh, that he's into that I'm not nearly as familiar as he is. But he is a big buff of of sort of classic cinema. And so I don't think we ever had like a Scorsese movie night or anything like that. But we certainly have conversations when he'll be talking about uh, classic films or older films where I will suggest something like, oh, you know, you really need to see this. Or or he will uh, mention perhaps another film that reminds me of, and this doesn't happen just with Scorsese, but it happens with many things. He'll, he'll mention a film that he has enjoyed that I've also seen. And I'll be like, oh, if you, uh, if, if you like that, then you have to check out this classic film. So that's kind of our our relationship i mean we do go to movies together now and then but you know we we didn't do like a scorsese night or anything like that <laughs> yeah no wolf of wall street uh with the sun. Uh, yeah i i think the thing that i find so fascinating about scorsese right now specifically in his period of uh his career we're recording this episode thursday october 12th and so killers of the flower moon is eight days away essentially and popularity seems at an all-time high. And typically, you don't get that with older directors. Typically, they have their almost crescendo, their peak in their kind of mid-50s, maybe early 60s. And and that certainly kind of seemed the trajectory that Scorsese was going to follow. If you think about Scorsese, he makes Goodfellas in 1990. And then he doesn't actually win the Best Picture Oscar until 2006 with The Departed. But like, there is this period of him where he is in his 50s, 60s, where those are the films that he's making, and that's the acclaim and fame that he's received. I think also of other directors, like, you know, Steven Spielberg does not really hit his peak, uh, really until Schindler's List and Jurassic Park in the same year. I don't know if there's ever been a director more high on their own power at that point, where that, like, that pinnacle is such an achievement that I just don't think can ever be replicated. Even if you look at Nolan right now with uh, Oppenheimer, like that, he fits in that age range. Scorsese, if I'm correct, is in his early 80s. I want to say he's 80 right now. And his popularity seems at an all-time high. And his, the awareness that people have of him making a movie is kind of astonishing. A way that, you know, he has peers that he grew up with in the 1970s. I just mentioned Steven Spielberg, and Spielberg really can't claim that he is of that same level of directorial interest that uh, Scorsese is. I mean, you think about the last film that Spielberg did was The Fableman, a film that I love, but it certainly doesn't feel like it's in the conversation quite like Killers of the Flower Moon. And I just, I wanted to kind of ask you, is, what is that element that kind of makes Scorsese universal amongst eight, amongst all ages. What is that like? That uh, you know, well, I'm, 
I, first, I'm going to say I'm not sure, right? All I all I can do is all I can do is guess. But I but I do think you're right, and it it like I said, it this it it was interesting that you brought up bringing out the dead and and this particular period because it did seem that uh, you know Scorsese could go the same way that say Oliver Stone or Ridley Scott or or some people like that who I remember a point when they were on top of the world, you know, a Ridley Scott film came out. You had to watch it. And then really, I, I, I mean, even more so than Spielberg, I would say, because Spielberg's still noteworthy. They kind of had long stretches where it's like, yeah, are, are they relevant anymore? And and Scorsese never really hit that. Um, I, I think part of it may be um, the types of films that Martin Scorsese has made. Um, I love Steven Spielberg, right? So I'm I, I'm never going to diminish that. Um, but he does sort of have a, a rep for um, you know making sweet, sentimental films that are, in some respects, manipulative. Um, you know, I've I've heard that about him as a criticism. It's personally never bothered me because I think he's a great story. And I think when you look at Martin Scorsese as as a director, he doesn't take that approach. Uh, he's gritty. He's direct. Um, he makes very serious movies, um, but but not in a way that they're unapproachable. Um, I think the material in in many respects in many of his movies is is kind of timeless, um, and and he is just so versatile. Um, I, I mean, one of the films I thought about talking about you that I'll mention later is Hugo, uh, which I, I love. And I think you could arguably watch that film and think it's a great film. And uh, nobody could give you a hard time uh, if you hadn't seen the credits, if you didn't realize that was a Martin Scorsese film, because sure. it seems it seems so different from the rest of his catalog. So I, I think just maybe the sheer artistry, the versatility, um, the fact that he speaks to subjects that are in many respects timeless. <laughs> yeah, I think there's this element of Scorsese, because I've been thinking a lot about this, like how is somebody this relevant at this stage of their career? And the thing that I find interesting, you mentioned Hugo, and let's kind of just go from there, like it's 2010 to 2023, like he has Hugo, he has Wolf of Wall Street, he has Silence, he has The Irishman, and now he has Killers of the Flower Moon. And the thing that's like so impressive about that run is each film is kind of building on something that he's done before to a degree. Like Wolf of Wall Street, he's essentially Goodfellas repurposed as a financial corruption exploration of Wall Street. Silence right. is exploring the themes that June and Last Temptation of Christ uh, discuss. Irishman, of course, is kind of a commentary on his whole career. Killers of the Flower Moon, to some degree, at least the way it's being promoted and talked about, and what I know of David Graham's novel, is it kind of feels like his thesis for the 21st century now explained through the 20th century, which is kind of what he does with Gangs of New York, bringing it all back. Like, Gangs of New York is the thesis of America now by looking True. at the past of the ninth century. So I think there's this level of him just like where some directors kind of shrink 
in size and scope, Scorsese actually expands in a really interesting way. And Gangs of New York is kind of a perfect example of a director just getting bigger with ambition and with knowledge and the tools that has helped to create a movie. And I think the second factor of it, and it's also a point that we'll talk about with Gangs of New York, he just discovers the most important movie star of the 21st century. And not to say discovers, like obviously James Cameron had discovered and Basil Lerman had worked with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. But really what happens is he worked with uh, he worked with Leonardo DiCaprio, Gangs in New York, and then that's like the next five movies of him. They're like, I'm going to work with this guy and he's going to become the biggest movie star. And maybe that's luck, maybe that's for Z having an eye for it. But Leo certainly reinvigorates his career and puts it kind of on another gear where it's just like, oh, this is like kind of a fastball and this is what we saw with Robert De Niro for two plus decades. He does it with DiCaprio. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and one thing I didn't hit on, I think that may speak to some of this too, um, is, and again, I, I don't want to diminish a Spielberg or anybody else because to some degree, all of the great directors do this, but um, uh, Scorsese does what I always recommend as a, as, as a college professor in any subject, not just, you know, if we're talking about film, is he seems to never stop learning and I think when you're talking about having audiences of varied ages, like Hugo is a 3D film and a pretty amazing 3D film. And that was a time when, you know, a lot of people were talking about, oh, you know, is 3D the future and 3D TVs were a big deal. Um, uh, Scorsese has not resisted uh, streaming services, right, which exactly. are big now. And Spielberg did pretty vocally resist, you know, well, movies shouldn't debut on streaming services and things. I don't know if you remember that, but yeah, yeah, but you, you often see pushback uh, from older story directors um, wanting to do things the old way, the conservative way. And I've never really seen that with Scorsese. He seems ready to... Uh, embrace or at least try out new trends, see what he can do with them, see, you know, uh, if the new tools can 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 work into to what he's trying to do. I get this impression for Scorsese, and this will kind of be my last point before we really jump into Gangs in New York, but I get this impression with Martin Scorsese when he is deciding to work with Apple TV or he's deciding to work with Netflix. It's kind of this understanding for him, like he has stories left in him to tell that he might just not otherwise be able to tell without the association of a Netflix, Apple TV producing slash financing his movies. So it's my, because if you listen to Scorsese's interviews, he certainly doesn't have a crystal image of the streaming services. He definitely sees the downsides in it and is oh, pretty sure. wary against it. And like that's something that he's really hitting on. I think it's kind of this almost necessary evil where he's kind of been in the business now for seven decades, I believe is how long he started working in the sixties. Like he's been in it for so long that he sees the cycle of film and how it changes. And it's just an understanding. Like I have to at times kind of get in bad with bad or morally corrupt institutions <laughs> that may be more damaging to film. And that kind of also like, 
leads naturally back to Gangs of New York because this is obviously a Harvey Weinstein-produced title. And Harvey Weinstein is the most important producer of this period of time and arguably of the 21st century with what they're doing at Miramax and the Weinstein Company. And of course, Harvey Weinstein's name is notorious now and for awful reasons. I mean, this is truly an awful human being. And this this movie is the context of which we understand this movie as it was presented to audiences is through the lens of how Harvey Weinstein markets a film, which is Oscar play, Oscar play, Oscar play. Let's make this a big movie. And he did. Like that is kind of the legacy of this film in some degree is Harvey Weinstein largely got his way until it came to best picture, which he just lost. Right. And it's, it's a fascinating thing. So let's kind of jump into games of New York. What is your, what interests you about games? Well, I, I mean, a lot of things um, interest me. I it, it, it I think it's just a, a fascinating story. I, I like the fact that what you you talked about already. I like the fact that this is a, a historical narrative, but I do think uh, Scorsese's commenting on current times, and I think that's uh, or at least the current times at the at the start of the 21st century, um, and I think that's what all great directors do with with historical narratives um i also just uh, you know absolutely love the cast of this film um you know not only do we have leonardo dicaprio that who you uh, already mentioned uh but daniel day lewis um i i don't care who he's working with i don't care what the project is if daniel day lewis is in a film um it interests me and I've, I've got to say that I, I, I think he is honestly one um, actor that I've seen ha- who, who has never given a performance that lets me down. Uh, you know, I certainly have films that I enjoy more than others that he is in. Uh, but, you know, he, he, he is just so good uh, that he gets immersed in every role. And I, I will watch him any chance I can. I think he's enthralling every moment he's on the screen in this movie. Yeah, I, Daniel Day-Lewis is kind of the big talking point of the Gangs of New York because this movie, and it's stupid to say that take a main actor out of a movie that the movie fundamentally doesn't work. The movie fundamentally does not work if Daniel Day-Lewis is not at the level that he is because he is kind of the life and soul of this movie in a way that like he is the energy. Leonardo DiCaprio is very young in his career here. And this is a point that I find so fascinating about Scorsese that I've talked to is Scorsese is really good at identifying young actors who are about to be a big deal, but they are about five years too young for the role. Right. Like I think of Andrew Garfield in Silence is probably the ultimate example of someone who will be able to achieve that level, but he's not quite there just yet in his career. And What's always fascinating to me is Scorsese then pairs them up with an actor who is in every way outplaying them. Just right. giving a fantastic performance. I think of Adam Driver and Liam Neeson in silence. And in this film, it's, I think of quite literally Daniel Day-Lewis and Liam Neeson again. 
in this mm-hmm. movie where they're just they're doing everything in this movie. Uh, Liam Neeson is in this movie for a short amount of time, but it's some of my favorite Neeson work. And it creates this interesting friction in the movie where it is a character who is both trying to earn the respect of this character in uh, The Butcher, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, and it's also a character who's just kind of vehemently goes being in the shadows of this world and kind of being compared unfairly, however you want to say it, to The Butcher. And so DiCaprio is bringing that into his role. Right. And I just, I, I, it's one of my favorite aspects of this movie. I find this fascinating. I'm sure you've seen the film, uh, There Will Be Blood, which is, to, to me, like that is the ultimate Daniel Day Lewis performance. I think that's maybe the best performance ever put to screen. Uh, in complete honesty, like I, I say that pretty confidently. But Daniel Day Lewis achieves in Gangs of New York, and maybe this is kind of the difficulty that I have with this movie, is, it almost feels like the templates that will then be fleshed out by Paul Thomas Anderson in There Will Be Blood. Like there is a level of these characters are quite similar. What the story is representing around their characters are quite similar. But at the same time, it's Daniel Day Lewis being Daniel Day Lewis in an incredible performance from it. Like no discredit to him. His performance is fantastic. Oh, sorry. I, I'm sorry. I, 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 I just trailed off there for a second. I, I forgot. But of course, I specifically had a question for you. I'm going to edit that part out right there because I paused okay. myself. Uh, Boris, I just guess like my question for you is just like, what is Daniel Day Lewis doing in this movie that's work on such an that, incredible level? That I, I'm sorry. That works. You said. Yeah, what is he like achieving in this film? That like just like what is the juice that he has in this movie that just makes it so fun to watch him? I, you know, I, I it, it's always hard to put a finger on 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 exactly what the the juice is, but uh, you know, I just uh, all the little nuances, the the tapping the glass eye, the uh, the. Uh, he, he's well, of course, you know, Daniel J. Lewis, his uh, sort of his acting methodology, if you've ever heard him talk, right, is to fully immerse himself in the role. He's a method actor. He kind of famously disappears into the roles while um, while he's on on set, often for extended times, even when he's not filming. And I, to me, it's just you, you can see that. Right. I, mm-hmm. I, 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 I love it. Um, and it's interesting that you brought up there will be blood uh, be, be, because, I, you know, I don't disagree with you at all about the Daniel Day Lewis performance. But that's an interesting movie for me because um, I I actually don't love that movie. I I, I it, there's something about the story, right? I, I really appreciate that movie, and I think it's incredibly well made, and I think it's remarkably well acted. And like you said, that that performance um, is is astounding. But uh, that movie was just kind of a hard watch for me. I I, mm-hmm. I think it's because it's depressing, and some something just never resonated me with me with this film. And and Gangs of New York, while it's um, you know, I I, I don't 
I don't know if it's fair to call it lighter. Just everything about it seems a little more joyful when I'm I'm watching it. Um, I think I like the story. It's in many ways about fathers and sons. Um, without giving away too much, to, uh, you know, hopefully people who listen to this that haven't seen the film will watch it. But of course, you you mentioned Liam Neeson, who really is um, Amsterdam, Leonardo DiCaprio's father. And then uh, arguably Daniel Day-Lewis, the butcher, becomes a father figure to Leonardo DiCaprio, yeah. but in a very odd way, because I, I mean... It happens early enough in the film. I think we can give a spoiler, right, for folks who haven't yeah, watched no. it. He, he's he's the uh, the man who kills, uh, you know, uh, Amsterdam's real father, uh, but yet becomes an oddball sort of father figure. And there's just something about that story to me that is so Shakespearean, so you know, compelling um, that I love it. And uh, I wish I could be. Uh, I wish I could give you something that's a, a better quote about Daniel Day-Lewis, but to me, he just inhabits the role. I believe him when he's on the screen. It's flashy, it's over the top, but I would argue not quite melodramatic. It's just really hard not to watch him when he's on the screen. So. I, I think you hit a really important point with Daniel Day-Lewis, which is you feel effort of the acting in the performance, right? Like, there's never a moment where, in Daniel Day-Lewis's career, where I don't just, he so naturally fits into characters, but I'm always aware that he is playing a character. And it's kind of fascinating to explore him in this role, where it's just like every mannerism has a purpose, every movement is so intentful. Like, it's so intentional in its design and i think that's just fascinating when you get a director like scorsese who is also kind of directing a very similar style like scorsese is a movie director and he's not necessarily caring about realism there is this kind of movie magic element for it and it's the same with daniel day lewis it's the reason he can go on long monologues while hitting a thing of whiskey and just like talking with one of with an accent that only he could have studied by learning like 50 years of like American literature in that time and learning that dialect and getting whatever resources he can get and there's that craft of it my difficulty with this movie because I will admit this is the period of Scorsese that I kind of just care the least about it's this early Miramax run it's really only two films that Gangs of New York and The Aviator. And that's not to say, like, for me saying, like, I don't care about these films isn't, it's very dismissive. And that's not true because I think both of those films are quite good. It's just, it's when you're talking about a director who has 15 masterpieces, arguably, it, it these are the two that kind of go forgotten uh, for me. I will say, the fun thing about revisiting this movie because this summer was the first time I had revisited it in probably maybe close to a decade, maybe a little less is the energy of which he directs and I don't think he's the greatest director of action by any means I think his opening set has really incredible moments and staging and there's other moments where I just feel the 
some cartoonish violence overtakes the quality of the movie. Like this movie, especially in the start, is very bloody. It's very over the top. And I just, I, it's the tone is a little off for me. Did you ever find those issues while watching this movie, or is this kind of a perfect humming engine for you? I, you know, I I really didn't have the issues with this film. I mean, I I I really love this film from start to finish. Um, there there are certainly elements to it that you hit at, at though. I mean, I said you know Daniel Day Lewis's performance, you know, doesn't feel melodramatic, but it feels flashy. What's What's interesting is you hit on. I mean, there is a movie magic there. Mm-hmm. This film is melodramatic, but. To, like when you look at the plotting and you look at the things sure. that happen, but to me it doesn't feel overly melodramatic when I'm watching it, right? Like I I am completely invested in it, and I and I'm not going to say that I think this is Martin Scorsese's best film. I mean I don't I don't think that is the case, but it is a film that really works for me for whatever reason whether it's the the plotting just happened to resonate uh with me whether it's just that i mean i like this cast i i love the supporting actors we haven't mentioned but john c Riley has a uh, incredible it, it, yeah an important but passing role and i i remember i was part of the las vegas film critics society at this point when this film came out and we actually gave him uh, an award this year for for best uh supporting actor um but but not just for gangs of new york this was the year i i if i remember correctly he had something like four or five incredible supporting performances i think what's that winner in chicago Right. And and we specifically voted him, which, you know, doesn't happen that often, but like best supporting actor, not only for, you know, uh, Gangs of New York, but for the body of work. Cameron Diaz, a young Cameron Diaz is in it. Um, uh, Liam Neeson, you mentioned uh, uh, Brendan Gleeson. Um, and Liam Neeson one of my favorite aspects of this movie. I think what he does in this movie is, and it's again, Gleeson's such a, I think we talked about it earlier this year that you were a little mixed on Banshees of Inisherin, where I was pretty overall extremely positive on the movie. Right. I think Gleason is just such a good visual medium on which to represent a feeling in the sense that he's an actor that doesn't have to say much, but delivers so much with facial expressions little movements and specifically eyes, the way he can just kind of emote with just his eyes is right. Something I've never quite seen before. And what he does in this movie is kind of incredible as he's involved with I, I forget exactly the character that he plays in this movie, but he is essentially somebody that was close to Father Liam Neeson. And almost serves as a guide for Leonardo DiCaprio's character, this kind of relationship that's going on uh, throughout the year. Absolutely, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that's partially what works for me too, is you you have a bunch of people in this movie that are in supporting roles, uh, Gleason, Neeson, John C. Riley, Jim Broadbent's in there, right? It, It, like, all people that are are quality lead actors that you know with, with the right project can hold the film on their own, 
and they're really true supporting actors, right? In the in the shadow of uh, really Daniel Day Lewis, as you said, but also Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, I mean, um, like you said, it's a young Leonardo DiCaprio, but he is a a, a lead in this film. I I would put him second to Daniel Day Lewis. You <laughs> could argue that he is the main character of right. this story. That I I if I'm correct, I believe Daniel Day Lewis gets top billing in this movie, and I actually want to say Diaz gets second billing in this movie. Not positive on that, but I want to say that was the case. I I, I don't want to go too mean on this point. I don't like Diaz in this movie at all. I, you don't, I, you don't I, like uh, Cameron Diaz? I don't Diaz, like Diaz. Should... Yeah, no. He's completely miscast in this role for me. It's not that I don't think that she can't do dramatic work. I, I just don't buy the chemistry with her and the Capra, and in complete fairness to per- this performance, Weinstein notoriously cut an hour out of this movie. Uh, Scorsese's vision is four hours long, and uh, I, from all my understanding, a lot of the scenes that got cut out were was the performance that Weinstein seemed the least likely to win a war. Gotcha. And that idea was Daniel Day Lewis needs to be in the film as much. And Cameron Diaz, that character is kind of a nothing thing in this movie. So let's kind of just reduce her down to almost a love interest in this movie. She has a little bit more to do. I wouldn't say this is just the case of a woman being in this film and like her only purpose is to be the love interest to the main character. But her role definitely feels at times a little underwritten. I don't know if you ever had that issue. I definitely have that issue while watching uh, yeah, you know, I, I agree with you there. I mean, if there's a weak point, I think it, it it is this role. And it it's really hard to say how much of it's Cameron Diaz. And like you said, how much of it's the, the cuts. That's in, unless you know exactly what's happened behind the scenes, it's mm. hard to say. But I, I certainly don't. It, it, you know, she works for me. I don't, I don't want to be mm. too picky on her, but I, I don't think it's her best performance. I don't, you know, out, out of all these actors that I love, it, it, it is the performance that I would argue that I like the least. So I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. You know, it was never enough to draw me out of the film or make sure. me dislike it. Um, but but I agree. I mean, I've certainly seen better performances from Cameron Diaz, and and uh, uh, again, in fairness to her, uh, you know, uh, cuts, editing, <laughs> you know, sure, can can do an awful lot to to uh, to either undermine or help a performance. So, and I, I what rewatching this movie recently for was there aspects that you forgot about while watching this movie that you kind of were just so pleasantly surprised to revisit or was there certain like obviously as we grow older our relationship with film and story changes was there any aspect that drew you in more than you had quite remembered was there something that what what was fun about revisiting this movie for you you know i don't know if anything drew me in more i i mean i was a little surprised that to me, I largely felt the same, right? I mean, I really didn't know when when we initially talked about doing it. I had always had kind of fond memories of the the movie, and and sometimes that stems from 
where you are at your life. You know, I, I was, uh, you know, a, a, a pretty much a, not a, a full time, but about a half time film critic at this point. It was a movie that I particularly liked that year. Uh, I remember seeing it at a screening with other critics in a, in a not crowded theater because it was just us. And, uh, and, you know, and sometimes all of those things impact how you feel when you walk out of a theater. Sure. But but I, I rewatched it at home um, on my television uh, on DVD with my wife. And I largely felt the same about it. I, I mean, I, I guess the most fun, like I said, I, I got stuck right back in by Daniel Day-Lewis. I mean, I just think it's, he's an actor that's like that though. Whatever I see him in, um, it, 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 it sucks me in. Right. I, I, even in things where I'm, I'm, I questioned it. I gotta say, I questioned his casting in, in Lincoln. I, you know, I was like, I was like, really? And, and then I saw the film and, I, you know, all questions stopped. I'm like, well, what was I thinking? It's Daniel Day Lewis. And, uh, and so that was fun. It's also fun for me as a, a guy who's aging, who, uh, you know, remembers uh, Leonardo DiCaprio coming on the scene as an even younger actor than this, uh, you know, uh, uh, Gilbert uh, Grape and, and uh, uh, Titanic, of course, uh, to go back and go, oh, yeah, this is young Leo, because like everybody else now, you know, I've, I've followed his career throughout the years. And, and it, you know, it was that was fun for me to kind of get nostalgic and and go oh yeah <laughs> you know this is this is this is what leo was like back then so. yeah i think the leo aspect of this movie is just really important to this story because this is probably if you go through all of leonardo leonardo dicaprio's performances in a scorsese film arguably the worst performance that he's given in any of Scorsese's films, and that's not a discredit to this performance. I think this performance is overall pretty good. It has some moments where he's just not there as an actor. I think there are some moments where he's just that melodramatic nature that you talked about with Daniel Day-Lewis never really hitting. Uh, DiCaprio can certainly hit it in moments in it, but it is just like the case that I find so fascinating is he's kind of doing the exact opposite of what we believe movie stars should be doing at this period of time where if you look at some of his contemporaries in this era like they're all kind of franchising off and it's not mm -hmm. quite the superhero boom that we have yet but if you look at some of his co-stars in previous films Matt Damon is doing the Bourne trilogy at right. this point his best buddy Tobey Maguire is working on Spider-Man now, a role that Leonardo DiCaprio was tapped for at one point. Brendan right. Fraser's doing The Mummy. Like, you even have Ben Affleck, uh, somebody that I believe Leo had worked with at some point. Like, Ben Affleck is doing, uh, he's not, his is less successful, but he's trying to do Daredevil, right. trying to be the rom-com guy. There, there's kind of all these templates of actors that are still relevant by every means. But they, their stardom it hits in a very different way. And DiCaprio's period, and this is not every movie he's done, but if you look at it, Gangs of New York, have The Aviator, follows it up with Blood Diamond, The Departed, like this kind of just trajectory of like five to ten movies where 
he's trying to work with the most interesting directors of that time and specifically directors who are much older than him and just trying to essentially be servants to their vision. And I think that's what makes DiCaprio so fascinating in this performance is just somebody where it's just like fundamentally this was never going to get him the most paid actor in Hollywood. And this was probably never going to be the most seen movie of the year by any means. And yet by the end of it, like he's now, you know, the biggest actor, one of the biggest actors in Hollywood. And it's just, it's that difference of career that I find so fascinating. The choices that actors and actresses make that affect who they are and how the audience perceives them. And there's this kind of trust with DiCaprio where you're just like, you're going to see a DiCaprio movie. There is an investment in it because you know what DiCaprio can bring. And that audience actor relationship is important for bottom line of business. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you make an excellent point. And, uh, you know, I don't want to pretend to to know Leonardo DiCaprio's inner thoughts or anything like that. I've never even had an opportunity to interview him. But you're certainly right. I mean, you gave great examples of actors franchising off and and him choosing not to do that was brave in a lot of respects because the paychecks that come with those big franchises are are usually better um, you know, so I, I, I mean, ultimately Leonardo DiCaprio made the better artistic choice, right? He, mm-hmm. he no doubt learned a lot from these folks he was working with. Um, he has work that he arguably can be prouder of and, and not to skip over your first point. I, I think I agree with you that this is probably one of his weaker performances for Scarcese. But I mean, I I will kind of couch it the same way you did. It doesn't bother me because I think he's a good enough young actor that at this point that I can say, well, yeah, it's a weaker performance, but it's still pretty good, right? Right. It never it never sucks me out of the film. It never you know made me doubt it or anything like that. So, and Scorsese uses his youngness and his naivety and his just kind of just not great acting at times to kind of just drive the home the point home of this dynamic relationship that he has with the butcher. And right. I find that relationship, but I think that's what Scorsese does so well as an actor is maybe he can even identify that DiCaprio is just a years away from it. But it's just like put him in a situation to succeed and see what he can bring. And there's moments where he brings it and he brings it in a big way and he's going head to head with arguably the greatest actor of their generation. And Daniel Day-Lewis, one point that I want to bring before we kind of wrap up this discussion on Gangs in New York, it's the aspect that I thought about a lot while re-watching clips from this movie and re-watching scenes from this movie as we press for this week's uh, episode. Is It's something that I had mentioned earlier on, which was this idea of a movie that is supposed to both serve as an exploration of the 21st century by looking at the past and this whole aspect of New York, which I'm, I'm not going to pretend that I'm uh, particularly well-versed with the politics and regions of New York. I've only been once and it was actually a few weeks ago. But like the aspect that I found so fascinating is the thematic value to tie it all back that Scorsese hit is 
he makes a movie about people of different religions being forced to live next to each other and the tension and violence that grows out of that. And obviously being where we are right now in our current political events, our geopolitical events with what's going on in Israel and Palestine, that thematic value hits in a very different way. And, you know, this is 2002. It's right before the Iraq war is about to begin. It's post 9-11. It's a lot of these same discussions. And I think that is the value of which Scorsese brings the picture, which is just, while the story may be very centered and focused, and it is obviously Scorsese exploring New York, as he understands it, the New York of Goodfellas, the New York of Taxi Driver, how did those come to be by looking at the passing kings of New York? It's so universal in its themes of what is it like to live next to a neighbor who I just don't get along with or agree in any regard. And I think right. that, I think it's so special in this movie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I and I think that goes back to you were asking what you know, why is Scorsese is Scorsese at a all time high? I mean, I think many of his movies are this way, right? They they have they have themes that are in many respects timeless and universal and things that you know that they make sense in whatever era you you watch them. And you know, we could probably find examples where that isn't true. And again, there are many great directors that do that, which is one of the things that make them great directors. But uh, I think Scorsese's particularly good at that, right? He he makes films with thematic elements that you know in many respects they always work and they speak to all generations. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's I think it's his best quality. And that's kind of my point on Gangs of New York. But is there anything that you want to say before we wrap up with our final few questions? You know, the only thing I was thinking about saying, because you brought up the career path of Leonardo DiCaprio and the choices that actors make. But the one other thing that sort of <laughs> stuck with me watching this film uh, is sort of a, a negative on a, on a sad note is you mentioned Liam Neeson and you mentioned him being very good. And I agree. Um, when I go back and I watch um, <laughs> Liam Neeson from 20 years ago, it sometimes makes me kind of sad. Um, yeah. Not not because I don't like Liam Neeson, but I think he did so much more interesting work earlier in his career uh, than than he's doing now. Which I, I guess it was somewhere along the lines of he did take in was very successful as uh, a man with a particular set of skills, um, and and I'm sure I'm forgetting a Liam Neeson film in there somewhere that breaks this mold. But it just seems like every time he takes the screen now, it's a new riff on his role in Taken. Uh, and I look back at some of these earlier films where he wasn't doing that, and I'm just like, oh man, this work was so much more interesting. Like you, you have so much more to give uh, film lovers and, and we're just not getting it. <laughs> Neeson is an interesting conversation and we could have spent a lot more time focusing on Neeson's career, but essentially like 2016 is the exception post taken because 2016 gives us silence. Uh, which is also directed by Martin Scorsese. And it also gives us a film called A Monster's Call, uh, directed by, I believe, the director is J.A. Bona. I, 
I might have the name mispronounced. He played, he voices a tree. It's a really fantastic uh, movie about loss and death, uh, and the grieving process. Uh, but like, I, I, it's a case of Easton should have been the biggest actor post Schindler's List. I mean, I, again, if you're talking about all time performances, uh, if 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 you argue Liam Neeson was the greatest performance on screen as Oscar Schindler, I think you're pretty well in your right to do that. Like, I think that's a pretty impressive, immensely powerful performance. It is just the, kind of the case of like he should have been in more, and they should have been asking him to do it, but he kind of just gets delegated to kind of less interesting roles and takes the money. I mean, that's simply what he does. They can kind of reinvent the career, and they're like, well, we can kind of make 10 years of franchise or Liam Neeson type movies for him. Uh, so that's kind of my final point on Gangs of New York. So, Forrest, I guess we can kind of jump over to the end of this segment, which is just the three questions that I ask every guest before we leave. We'll start with the two that are kind of tied together. Who is an actor that has passed that you would have loved to have seen work with? Martin Scorsese. So they don't have to be alive during the time of Scorsese's career. So if you wanted to pull someone from the 1930s, 1940s, go for it. And the second part of this question is, who is an actor still alive that has never worked with Scorsese that you would love the chance to have seen to see work with Scorsese? Uh, okay. Well, I am gonna. I'm gonna pick an oldie. I'm. I'm gonna say Humphrey Bogart. I. Sure. Uh, I love Humphrey Bogart. I love Humphrey Bogart movies. And something tells me, especially as interesting as he was in noir films and, and things along that lines, um, that Martin Scorsese could have done something particularly special with with Humphrey Bogart. And uh, it, it would be a real treat to to see that. I'll, I'll uh, piggyback off that. I'll just go Anthony Perkins uh, oh. of Norman Bates Psycho fame. Just a... And I hope they haven't worked together. I can't think of a case where they did work together. Uh, just an ultimate right guy in every type of movie where it's just like, you can't cast eyes. Like, there is certainly a, you either have that scary element or you don't. And Anthony Perkins always had that scary element to him. And just something so unnerving about it. And just the way he looked at you. Terrifying. So Anthony Perkins will be my answer for this. What about the actor still alive who hasn't worked that you'd love to see work? With? Well, I'm I'm going by my memory, and sure says he has a huge catalog, and so that's always dangerous at 55. But I don't believe he's ever worked with Ryan Gosling. Am I correct about that? That is correct. I can't. No, they've never worked together. Okay. He's a young actor that I, I really admire and I think has done some, some, uh, and I don't even know if it's fair to call him young anymore because he's, mm. he, he's becoming, uh, I guess you'd say, uh, an elder statesman who was a young actor. Uh, but I just think he's a really fine, uh, performer. And, uh, uh, again, I think it would be fascinating to see what a, a director like Scorsese could, could do with him. You know what? I'll, piggyback off you again and I'll just go his notebook co-star and I will say Rachel McAdams who is an actress that I can be obsessed with when used properly I think she is an actress that can be hit or miss for me where there's some projects that I love her in and there's other projects where I'm just like I don't fully understand 
either what she's doing or what she's achieving in it. I think she's best when she's working with a director with such a clear vision and they know how to utilize her. Uh, he gives, I think, still my favorite supporting performance this year, uh, at least uh, for an actress uh, in Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, as the mother. I think she is absolutely exceptional in that movie. Uh, she's great in films like Spotlight. I just, I liked her a lot and I really would like to see what she could do with Scorsese. And I don't think it's ever happened. I, I'm almost positive she's not in the Aviator. I, yeah, I, I don't say Michelle Williams, but she's in Shutter Island. That's right. That's right. I, yeah. I, I, she would have also been a great choice, but, uh, I, I had almost forgotten she was in that film until yeah, you said that. Shutter Island, very yeah. brief role, but very memorable role. Which brings us to our final question for us, which I'm going to put you on the soft spot here. What are your top five Martin Scorsese films? Uh, well, one. well, first let me say this is an impossible question, right? <laughs> I mean, I will probably regret what I've said even before right. this ends up airing, but, but I, I can certainly list five films that I think are great that are Martin Scorsese sure. films. Uh, I think if I'm going backwards, I think I'm going to say number five is Taxi Driver. Um, highly influential, incredible performance by a much younger Robert De Niro. Um, a, a movie that arguably changed cinema. And often when I make lists like this, I like to think about the influence that films and directors have on other people. And it's just a, you know, a, a really influential, important film. Mm. Uh, number uh, four uh, would be, I think, Wolf of Wall Street. I, yeah. I, I really enjoy that. It's a fun, it's a fun movie. Um, and, and interestingly, I think some people take the wrong message from it. The message that, yeah, uh, so. that, that, uh, that church says he is not trying to give, but I, I know young, uh, uh, students who see Jordan Belfort as a hero. And I don't, I don't think that was ever the message that film was supposed to give, but I, I think it's really well done. Uh, number three, um, I'm going to pick Hugo. I think it's an interesting film, and I love the fact that Scorsese uh, made sort of a complete U-turn and did something, you know, considerably different than most of his catalog. Yeah. Uh, two, I'm going to say Raging Bull. Um, you know, I, as I said, many people have called it, uh, if not the best film of the 1980s, one of the best. Uh, I agree with that assessment. It's a really incredible movie. Um, and one, I'm going to go with the movie that I've, I've already said made me a, a, a real fan. You know, I was aware of Scorsese before, but the one where I'm just like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I got to watch everything. Uh, good, good fellas. Uh, it's yeah. a it, it's it's not a, a, a surprising pick, but. What can I say? I love that movie. <laughs> Sometimes the least surprising pick is the completely right pick. And in the case of Goodfellas, it's hard to argue against the majesty <laughs> and its influence. Uh, so, Forrest, thank you so much for doing Gangs of New York with me. Uh, this was a really fun time. Uh, I know you're not writing as much as you used to, but uh, where can people find you if they want to read your writing? Well, they can still find me in Highbrow Magazine. I mean, I am a full-time uh, college uh, professor. I'm the advisor of the Orion, which is the Chico State uh, independent newspaper now. So I do spend more of my time doing that. But 
Um, I usually write, you know, uh, six or seven pieces a year for Highbrow Magazine, which is highbrowmagazine.com, which you uh, uh, also contribute to. So that's probably the easiest place for them to find me these days. (laughs) Perfect. And my name is Ben Friedman. Thank you all for listening and joining in on this episode. What's your thoughts on Gangs of New York? Let me know. Thank you all for watching. Take care and bye-bye.